Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Our guest today is Vincent Philip Munoz. He is the Tocqueville Associate Professor of Political Science and Concurrent Associate Professor of Law at the University of Notre Dame. He is the founding director of Notre Dame's undergraduate minor in constitutional studies, and he directs Notre Dame's Tocqueville program for inquiry into religion and public life. His first book, God and the Founders, Madison, Washington, and Jefferson, won the Hubert Morkin Award from the American Political Science Association for the best publication on religion and politics in 2009 and 2010. His First Amendment church-state case reader, Religious Liberty in the American Supreme Court, The Essential Cases and Documents, was first published in 2013 and is in use in classrooms across the country. His current project, which we will be discussing today, is on the natural right of religious liberty and the original meaning of the First Amendment religion clauses. He, reser- he received his Bachelor of the Arts degree at Claremont McKenna College, his Master's at Boston College, and his Ph.D. at Claremont Graduate School. So a Claremonster indeed. Phil Munoz, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here talking with you. Uh, I think it makes sense to timestamp uh, this podcast. So you're here to at Princeton to deliver the James Madison program's 2020 Charles E. Test Distinguished Lecture Series, three lectures over three days on religious liberty in the American founding, uh, which our listeners can also expect to hear on this podcast in the not-so-distant future. Now, as your uh, CV makes clear, the American founding has been a focus of your career. So please say a word about how that came to be, where that interest in the American founding came from. Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, uh, let me think think for a second. Um, it's actually kind of probably an odd place to, uh, an odd way to answer, but uh, my junior year in college, I had a class from Charles Kessler, and it was actually on Aristotle. Hmm. Class was on the natural law, and we read Aristotle's ethics, uh, and it was the first time I had read the ethics. I'd studied uh, Plato, but I had never really studied Aristotle, and I thought the ethics was uh, the most compelling and interesting and engaging a book I had ever uh, read. Uh, and I felt when I read it, it was sort of what I had been looking for for a long time. Uh, but Aristotle doesn't talk about rights. Uh, he talks a lot about virtues and duties. And so I became very interested in what does this mean? Uh, what does this mean for, I, I didn't know the terms, but for the, the liberal way of life? a regime dedicated to freedom, not to virtue. And I was, I w- was very interested in, you know, what uh, is a, a, a country dedicated to liberty in some ways deficient? Should we be dedicated to virtue? And that led me to the American founding to try to see how liberty and virtue might go together. And we'll get to that a little bit later on, whether or not liberty and virtue do indeed go together. Um, but uh, you are a student of Harry Jaffa's. Uh, so please tell us how he might have informed your understanding of the American founding and the American experiment more generally. 
Yeah. Well, so I arrived in Claremont, I, I think, uh, three months after Harry Jaffa had retired or was forced to retire. Uh, so I didn't have him in class per se, uh, though he did uh, come in and guest lecture at many of the classes uh, I, I did take. And he read my undergraduate thesis and I suppose was a sort of informal advisor. He ha- had an office in the basement of the library. <laughs> and, you know, we at Honold Library and we go down there and <laughs> you go to ask him a question and, you know, four hours later you'd, you'd emerge, oh. <laughs> as it were. Uh, so I guess he was, uh, was and is one of my teachers. Um, <laughs> sorry, I've lost track of your question. Uh, <laughs> how he might have influenced your view oh, of the American founding. Yeah, sure. I mean, like everyone, I learned about Lincoln through Harry Jaffa. And, uh, and Lincoln is perhaps the answer of how virtue and liberty to, can go together. I mean, I learned about statesmanship. Uh, learned, uh, I, th- I think, well, let me, let me be more focused. Uh, Harry Jaffa, one, one thing that's not appreciated about him is Harry Jaffa is one of the most thoughtful and clear explainers of social compact theory. In fact, my lectures today are going to start off with social compact theory. And uh, as I've been trying to think through uh, these issues for myself, what does it mean to have a natural rights? What does it mean that all men are created equal? There's really been no better explainer uh, of these things and no better author on these things than Harry Jaffa. Well, unfortunately, there's not a Harry Jaffa in every classroom, and that interest in the founding and the founding fathers is is not so widespread. I'm always amused. There was a recent study on civic education, and if I get the number right, I think only 28% of college graduates were able to correctly identify James Madison as the father of the Constitution, which, of course— is especially insulting to us at the at the James Madison program. And I'm curious whether you've noticed this lack of interest in or knowledge of the founding among your students. Well, I'm probably the, the exactly wrong person to ask because my students are <laughs> take the founding from me. Uh-huh. So if they're not interested, it's my fault. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I think... Um, look, identity politics are, are not good for the founders. And there is... Uh, a habit of mind that uh, blows off the founders because they're uh, dead white men, because they're slave uh, holders, some of them, not all of them. And uh, so they're dispensed with or thought of as not interesting. Uh, and I, th- I think that's unfortunate because I think they're very interesting. Um, they're interesting in part because they explain why slavery is wrong. Uh, they made slavery a problem uh, through their principles uh, by explaining why slavery is wrong. So I think they have much to um, offer us. And my job as a teacher is um, to try to make their thought interesting, engaging, just to present it uh, to be the vehicle by which students can engage them for themselves. That doesn't mean that they have to uh, love the founders. Uh, what I want them to do is take their their lives and their ideas seriously. I mean, that's my job. And how do you convince students who maybe are, are not naturally drawn to the founders or especially interested, how do you convince them to take the founders seriously? It, students uh, are, have always been interested in justice, right? And so uh, to try to show how the founders, just like themselves, are interested in, in natural justice, right? What does it mean to be equal? We're still debating this question of human equality. Uh, and to tr- try to show that the founders thought about these questions of liberty and justice and virtue uh, carefully, thoughtfully, philosophically, uh, in sophisticated manners. And then not say, uh, my job is not to 
as I said, not to teach students or instruct students to worship the founders, but to engage them. And I think if you can just get if if you can get students to read with an open mind, uh, the ideas are what what are interesting, uh, and and the idea ultimately is what is justice? What is due to man as man? Uh, what is equality? What is liberty? And those ideas are timeless. Uh, you can you can study them by reading Aristotle. You can study them by reading Plato. You can study them by reading the founders. Hmm. And you yourself have contributed a great deal to the study of the founders. Um, I mentioned your first book, God and the Founders, Madison, Washington, and Jefferson. Why did you choose those three? Yeah, well, that's interesting. Um, well, M- Madison and Jefferson, you could say, are obvious choices. Uh, they've been very influential on Supreme Court uh, church-state jurisprudence, but they've been influential because they, they wrote philosophically uh, about religious liberty. Uh, Jefferson was the author of the Virgi- Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom, a bill that the state of Virginia adopted in 1786, and uh, he gives a natural right account of religious freedom in it. Madison uh, wrote a document called the, the Memorial and Remonstrance in 1785. So in part, I studied Jefferson and Madison because they've been influential, but they've been influential because they, they wrote deeply and thoughtfully. Uh, Washington was uh, maybe a bit of a novel choice, and maybe this is one of the contributions I've made. Uh, people didn't think about Washington in terms of religious liberty. And, uh, but just by reading Washington, Washingtonian documents, I came to realize that he had something to say and that he had a position that was not quite the same as Madison and Jefferson. And there are important differences between Madison and Jefferson, too. So I used Washington as a way of showing the, the differences among the founders. Uh, and, I, I mean, Washington's collective works are something like 38 volumes, That's right? right? Yeah. I mean, the, he wrote an enormous amount. Um, and so he, so, and he, he was a real political actor, obviously, and he, he did things about religion uh, and politics that were interesting. Uh, so I just thought that there was something that hadn't been said, and uh, I tried to piece various strands of his, his writings together and, and to make a coherent argument out of his position. I think there is a coherent argument to his position. Yeah, I'm wondering if you could say a little more about that. Uh, that's interesting about Washington. Um, we seem to shortchange him. He's a general, a politician, uh, but not a deep political thinker or philosophical mind. Uh, you obviously find a Washington that's different than that. Well, let me just give you an example. Um, a difference between uh, Madison and Washington that I talk about in the book. So Madison, uh, Madison thought uh, military chaplains were unconstitutional. And he thought that uh, they were unconstitutional because – uh, well, to, to use our language today is a violation of separation of church and state. You can't, the state can't hire chaplains. Washington's uh, very first action uh, when he uh, sort of received his uh, commander, commandership as gen- of the Continental Army was to request a raise for chaplains, mm-hmm. like a salary increase, because he wanted better men to be chaplains. Uh, Washington didn't think they were unconstitutional. He thought they were absolutely necessary to the war effort. Chaplains helped make better soldiers. You know, they helped console soldiers. They helped fortify their character. They made them more obedient. Um, so Washington came at things from a different perspective, and it's an interesting perspective. Right? There's a real civic uh, purpose for chaplains, Washington said. So I, I just think that that position wasn't, uh, wasn't well understood 
And as you say, Washington, through his actions, gives us a perspective on church and state and religious liberty that uh, the more philosophical Madison and Jefferson um, don't offer. Let's talk a little bit about all three of them. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about how each man understood religious liberty and the separation of church and state, maybe both how they differed, but also where they might have been similar? Yeah, well, I'm going to use contemporary terms. So this is not uh, a historian would be unhappy with me, but uh, maybe for the sake of uh, it's a podcast, not, a, yeah, not an academic right. treatise. <laughs> so uh, Jefferson, I say, would be a progressive liberal. And I say that in two, uh, two ways. Um, He's progressive, meaning he thought that um, things will get better if the truth is set free, the truth will reign, uh, and that, as he put it, monkish stu- superstition would be overcome. Right. So he was a real progressive in the sense that he thought things were going to get better. Uh, we'd improve morally and philosophically with the passage of time. He was also a liberal in, in that he thought um, uh conservative religious types were the ones holding the truth back. Mm. Uh, and so his politics are anti-clerical. Um, they're anti, we'd say anti-privilege today. And he, even though he talked a good game about natural rights, his politics were much more hard-headed and uh, anti-religious or anti-clerical uh, at the time. So I, I label him uh, sort of a, a, a modern progressive. Uh, on the other side, uh, say George Washington, uh, he was Republican, not in the sense of Ronald Reagan Republican, um, but in that he thought that the that well here's his syllogism: um, uh, Republican government depends on Republican citizens, self-governing citizens who are moral and virtue, virtuous, and virtue depends on religion. Therefore, government should support religion because religion supports the character that supports self-government, right? So that, that turns religion into a more utilitarian from a political perspective. Uh, but Washington thought that was legitimate. So government should support religion, nurture religion, because religion nurtures uh, good character, uh, political character. So Washington was more Republican in the sense of uh, concern with civic virtue, uh, that also happens to be the sort of position that many social conservatives take today. Uh, Madison, I say, was a libertarian, and people <laughs> misunderstand that. I mean, a classical liberal would be the better uh-huh. way to put it. Madison was more concerned with uh, limits of, on state power. That's what I mean by libertarian, not a, not a moral libertine. So a classical liberal, I should use that term. And the way I put it is this way. Madison might have agreed with Washington that... Uh, good character was necessary for government, for self-government. He certainly believed that. And that religion would help cultivate uh, that, that character. But Madison said, but religion doesn't need the support of government. This is his classical liberal right. or libertarian side, yeah. right? In fact, that uh, government support of religion can be corrupting to religion. So George Washington, you might be right uh, that uh, uh, government needs, uh, democratic government needs religion, but religion doesn't need the state. And therefore, he was much more against uh, state's endorsement or support of, of religion. And uh, wh- where do they agree? Um, you drew out there Madison and Washington agreeing at least on the, on the usefulness of religion. What about Jefferson? Yeah, well, Jefferson's a slippery character. Yeah. I mean, this is what maybe <laughs> um, one of the things that uh, my book is known for. I mean, I, 
I actually see a contradiction in Jefferson. I, you know that Jefferson, the natural right theorist, the, the beautiful uh, rhetorician, um, talks a better game than Jefferson, the politician, mm-hmm. who is much more hard-headed, as I say, and anti-clerical. Um, here, here's one area where Madison and Washington do agree, and I think the court has got Madison wrong. Uh, Madison's position was not that government couldn't support religion in any way. It's that government shouldn't support uh, religion alone, meaning like religious taxes for religious ministers. But if, um, well, to take a famous case here from New Jersey, where uh, the state of New Jersey was reimbursing the, the, the bus fares for kids to go to school and they could go to a Catholic school or they could go to a, a public school. Those were the only schools that were available. So uh, the state pays for bus fares so kids can get to school back and forth safely. And there were four arguments on the Supreme Court that said, no, the state can't reimburse the bus fare because of the wall of separation of church and state. Madison would say, well, that's crazy. Look, um, as long as you have a legitimate civic purpose, you don't have to discriminate against religion, right? Uh, You can't fund... uh, religious ministers with special taxes for religion, but you just treat religious citizens the same or equally to other, to non-religious citizens. That's Madison's actual politics. George Washington would say that equality that Madison championed is fine. George Washington would also say, but you could you could also just support religion. Um, both Washington and Madison would agree, uh, I'm sorry, would disagree with today's strict separationists who want to say that religion must be affirmatively discriminated against by the state. Right. Sorry, that was a long answer. No, v- very good. Um, now, related to this, I think there's an interesting question on the way personal faith uh, might or ought to inform the conduct of public servants. Uh, how did the founding fathers, and I'm going to use that blanket term just for simplicity, saying, how did the founding fathers think private or personal faith should inform the way they carried out their public duties? Well, I, I know that's a big question. I mean, uh, what comes to mind is the election of 1800 when the leading charge against Jefferson was that he was an atheist, yeah. right? So their politics were pretty rough and tumble in ways that uh, we, we probably understand, but we don't understand that their politics was rough and tumble too. Look, um, in the same way what we think about uh, faith and politics today, I mean, ideally religion uh, helps provide a moral code that makes people honest, you know, faithful servants, that they do their duty, that they favor the common good. I think uh, the founders thought that religion helped cultivate those characteristics. I, I think the founders also thought that um, one could have those characteristics without being religious. I mean, George Washington was a Episcopalian. Um, you know, how faithful he was, we don't really know. Um, so religion certainly can help fortify moral character. I don't think they, I don't think they all thought that um, you could only have that character if you if you were religious. In God and the Founders, you mentioned the dissipation of an understanding and appreciation of natural rights, and uh, I think certainly those ideas are being taught less and less in, in classrooms. And uh, and and you asked the question. I'm quoting you here whether the right to religious liberty can be defended persuasively without recurring to natural rights is at least an open question and perhaps doubtful. So a decade after you wrote that, I thought I'd put that question to you today. Can the right to religious liberty be defended persuasively without recurring to natural rights? Yeah, that's good. That's a good question. Well, this is what I'm going to talk a little bit about on Wednesday, so two days from now in my lecture. 
a lecture that's not yet written on my back. <laughs> so I think uh, since since I wrote those words, uh, I've been, I've been working on Madison and what I'll call his natural theology, hmm. and I think he does have an account on uh, the grounds of natural rights. Uh, that are not simply theological, so they're, it's natural theology, so philosophical theology. Uh, and that, uh, now you have to come to the lecture on Wednesday, but uh, we can learn something about both the duties and liberties we have as, as human beings by reflecting on our human nature. I think that's Madison's position. Uh, we can actually learn about the duties we owe to God and how we are to discharge them by reflecting on human nature. And Madison, I think, derives uh, a natural right, uh, an inalienable natural right, to worship according to conscience based on um, human freedom uh, and human uh, rationality. And I'm going to try to explain that on, on, on Wednesday. So, but I, I think the, the short answer is, I'm going to put it in non-Madisonian terms, but um, a, a God that created us with the ability uh, to worship freely, or we might say to love God, uh, would want nothing short of uh, love from him, his creatures. Uh, why would you settle for mere obedience from a creature who can love what Madison calls to worship with conviction and conscience? Mm -hmm. He doesn't use the word love, but I'm using that word. Uh, and so we can, we can reason from what we can offer to what God must want. But it turns out uh, you can only love freely, right? And therefore, that worship must be free. It can't be coerced. Uh, the, actually, what, what led me to see this uh, was when I got married. Hmm. You learn something about religious freedom from getting married oh. because— uh, Marriage is the gift of yourself to another, and the nature of of marriage, of, of the sacrament, uh, is that it must be given freely. Mm. You can't actually coerce someone to marry you, right. right? Not not a true marriage, and no one would really want that. Oh, right? That's very good. Yeah. And it was actually thinking about marriage led me to understand how Madison thought about religion mm. and religious freedom that a being that's created to love freely must be allowed to love freely. So a being that's created to worship freely uh, not only must be allowed to worship freely, that's what true worship is. So let me ask a, a related question with maybe a little more of a point on it. Uh, we're watching America become increasingly irreligious, uh, fewer and fewer people attending church, more and more people identifying as none when asked their religious affiliation. So I think it's understandable that we would begin to wonder, is it possible for a people who do not believe in God to make these arguments grounded in natural law and in natural rights? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a big question and a good question. Let me just take an issue. I don't know that we're seeing people become less re religious. They're not going to church as much, and they're certainly less Christian. But a lot of the young people I know who aren't, who aren't church-going certainly have faith. Right, and they wor have certain gods that they worship, right. uh, and so this is maybe a sociological view of religion. But they, um, they're very faithful and mm -hmm. committed, and they have their own sacraments. 
Um, so there's a religious impulse that's still present. It's just directed at different things. Mm -hmm. Okay, but that's not what you're asking. Um, well, I suppose the question could be put another way, which is to say uh, these things that they worship, uh, can those things give them the grounding to make an argument on natural law and natural rights? Yeah. I mean, the, the difficulty here is that the, the idea of natural law and natural rights, and I, and I understand natural rights to be part of the natural law. Uh, the difficulty for us today is that we don't believe in, in nature in the sense that it's normative, mm -hmm. that it offers guidance that there's natural right and natural wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, we tend to believe that uh, we are the authors of what's right and wrong. We are the authors of our identity. You know, We become whatever we want to become. And that's the spirit of our times. The idea of natural rights and natural law is that there's something above man, a, a standard mm -hmm. um, that's in nature. And that's, that's not easy for people to accept. I, I actually think if they think about things, they believe it, right? Um, and <laughs> in just very simple ways. I mean, finders, keepers. That's a natural law <laughs> precept, <laughs> right? right. Uh, it's mine. Yeah. It's not yours. Well, uh, look, people are natural Lockeans. They believe in property rights, right? Uh, you learn this when you have young kids. <laughs> and, and it's not that... Uh, these laws of property or finders keepers, they're not just conventional. We really think they're wrong. We think racism is wrong. It is wrong. We think slavery was horrendous. It was horrendous. But not just because um, that's our morality. We think, no, it's wrong. It's against human nature. But that's natural law thinking. So I think uh, nature is still there. Um, it's just harder for us to understand it. A friend of mine likes to say, Nature always bats last. <laughs> that's, that's very good. Uh, I guess it's similar. I guess uh, you can keep chasing nature out with a pitchfork, but it keeps rushing back in. Seems like it. Um, okay. So maybe you'll take issue with the premise of this question, uh, maybe to some extent. But it seems that we're increasingly hearing people say that this decline of religion – uh, was inevitable, that the founding fathers created a quintessentially small L liberal regime that was incapable of sustaining or supporting uh, an earnest practice of religion. So I'll ask you this. Was it inevitable? Yeah. Well, one of those people who writes those things is uh, one of my good friends. So Pat Deneen. Uh, look, I think that view, the way you put it just there, um, uh, discredits religion, right? If religion requires the government to sustain it, there's something wrong with the religion. Uh, now, it is true that the way of life we've created might make the practice of religion uh, more difficult. Perhaps we're more distracted or uh, we live less virtuously and, and therefore we're formed by our habits. That's certainly true. We've seen that in different periods of history. Uh, that just means it's, it's harder to keep the faith, not that it's impossible. Um, I also think, look, uh, institutional religion hasn't acquitted itself very well recently. I mean, you know, I'm a Catholic, and look, the Catholic Church uh, is, uh, <laughs> you know, the scandals, the sexual scandals, the abuse scandals, the failure of leadership by the bishops. Um, you know, one can understand why people are people turn away uh, when when moral figures, when church leaders don't act as they should. That's very destructive. So um, it, it's not just it's not just the state or, or system of government. 
religion itself has has not been true to itself, and that leads to terrible consequences. As I mentioned in the introduction, your your current project is on the natural right of religious liberty and the original meaning of the First Amendment's religion clauses. And I won't ask you to come out and tell us right here the original meaning of the First Amendment's religion clauses, though if, if you'd like to, I won't stop you. But uh, do tell us a little bit about this project, what exactly you're working on, and maybe what you're hoping to accomplish with it. Yeah, well, that's a big question. I mean, th- I have three lectures worth of answers. <laughs> that, that, uh, that's right. So I, I'm trying to think through. So my first book was on the the political thought of three founders, Madison, Washington and Jefferson, as you said. Now I'm turning to the political thought of the Constitution, right? What, what's the political theory of the First Amendment? Um, and the answer, my answer is it's uh, a natural rights theory. And then what would that look like? If we adopted a natural rights approach to the First Amendment, uh, what ki- type of jurisprudence uh, would we get? And then would it be a good juris- jurisprudence? I mean, I, I'm... I'm an originalist in the sense that I'm very interested in the original meaning of the Constitution, but I think um, we need to figure out the original meaning of the Constitution and then evaluate whether that's meaning that meaning is good. I'm a political theorist, not a constitutional lawyer, uh, so uh, the Constitution has to acquit itself, right? Uh, but we can't ask if a natural rights approach would be good without understanding it. So most of what I try to do is uh, is understand it. And you mentioned the political theory of the Constitution. I can only ask a student of Harry Jaffa this. Is there a break, you think, between the political theory of the Declaration of Independence and the political theory of the Constitution? Uh, some, uh, maybe in saying that you think that there's a natural rights basis of the Constitution, you would say no. Uh, but some people will say that the, the Declaration was a revolutionary document based on natural rights and the Constitution is almost a counter-revolutionary document. Yeah, I think that's wrong. Uh, I, I think that the Constitution is a natural rights document. Um, now, it's not just a natural rights document, but um, the aim of the Constitution is to preserve liberty and to preserve our natural liberties, our natural rights. Um, now, it does more than that, but that that is the end. I mean, I, I mean, Lincoln said it best, right? The, the, the Declaration is the, the apple of gold and the, the Constitution is the frame of, of silver that surrounds the apple. So the, the, the rights in the Declaration are the end, the Constitution is the means. But it's not, I mean, to preserve liberty uh, is a, a general thing, right? Uh, how do you preserve liberty? And that depends on circumstances. It depends on all sorts of things. There's no one way to do it. Uh, the Articles of Confederation didn't do it well, and the Constitution was an improvement on it. So I, I do see the Constitution as a natural rights document, but it's not just that. In working on this current project of yours, is, is there anything you found that surprised you or, or might surprise a future reader of the book? Yeah, lots of things. I mean, uh, it, it's actually an honest question for me whether the nat- natural rights approach uh, to the Constitu- to the First Amendment would be a good one today. Hmm. I mean, it's not... Everyone will assume I, I simply defend it because I'm writing about it, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, there are things about it I like and things about it I don't. Um, there's a case, uh, oh, it's about 15 years old, called Locke v. Davey, which um, uh, I thought uh, was a travesty. It was um, a kid got a scholarship um, from the state of Washington, and uh, he was a low-income student, and uh, it was a state scholarship that 
anyone who had the right grades and the uh, low income could get. So they gave, the state gave them a couple thousand dollars to go study at any accredited college uh, on one condition, that he not declare a major in theology. Hmm. That's from the Washington State Blaine Amendment. And so this kid, knowing he would lose the scholarship, uh, declared a major in pastoral studies. And that was classified as theology. And he lost his scholarship. And it gets all the way to the Supreme Court. The case is called Locke v. Davey. Uh, the Locke there is Gary Locke, not, not John Locke. <laughs> and uh, the Supreme Court uh, ruled against the kid and said, yeah, the state could take away his scholarship. Seven to two. And I thought the two, uh, Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas, were right. Um, I still like their opinion. Uh, but in the book I'm working on right now, I say, actually, if you follow the original meaning, it would probably go the, the other way. Hmm. So I don't like some of the results that uh, it seems uh, that my book would counsel. Um, but my, my aim is not to write a book that says uh, this is the way it should be according to me. I'm just trying to understand the natural rights approach, and natural rights approach reaches some decisions I don't like. Well, we're all looking forward to hearing your test lectures, which will air separately, and we're all looking forward to the release of this book. Uh, Dr. Munoz, thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. Well, there you have it. Another timeless discussion recorded back in pre-COVID times. If you enjoyed the conversation, be sure to listen to the test lectures that Dr. Munoz delivered on religious liberty in the American founding. You'll find a link to those lectures in the show notes. That does it for us today. Be sure to tune in next time to hear from Alexandra DeSanctis on abortion, the pro-life movement in America, and more. I look forward to having you back with us here on Madison's Notes. <laughs>